TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Elise Hugh. You're listening to TED Talks Daily. In this virtual interview from TED 2020, the prequel, head of TED, Chris Anderson, talks with Larry Brilliant. Larry is an epidemiologist and a TED Prize winner who's about to put into context the severity of our current global pandemic, but also a way forward. You'll find out why when it comes to conquering the coronavirus. He says, of course we can do this. Support comes from Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial, when the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Capital One Bank. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One NA, member FDIC. So Chris, who's up first? Well, we have a man who's worried about pandemics pretty much his whole life. Uh, He played an absolutely key role more than 40 years ago in helping the world get rid of the scourge of smallpox. And in 2006, he came to TED to warn the world of the dire risk of a global pandemic and what we might do about it. So please welcome here, Dr. Larry Brilliant. Larry. Thank you. So good to see you. Thank you. Nice to see you. Larry, in that talk, you showed a video clip that was a simulation of what a pandemic might look like. I would like to play it. This gave me chills. Let's assume, for example, that the first case occurs in South Asia. It initially goes quite slowly. You get two or three discrete locations. Then there'll be secondary outbreaks. And the disease will spread from country to country so fast that you won't know what hit you. Within three weeks, it will be everywhere in the world. Now, if we had an undo button, and we could go back and isolate it and grab it when it first started, if we could find it early, and we had early detection and early response, and we could put each one of those viruses in jail, that's the only way to deal with something like a pandemic. I mean, Larry, that phrase you mentioned there, early detection, early response, that was a key theme of that talk. You made us all repeat it several times. Um, yeah. is, that, is that still the key to preventing a pandemic? Oh, surely. Uh, you know, when you have a pandemic, something moving at exponential speed, uh, if you miss the first two weeks, if you're late the first two weeks, it's not the deaths and the illness from the first two weeks you lose, It's the two weeks at the peak. Those are prevented if you act early. Early response is critical. Early detection is a condition precedent. And how would you grade the world on its early detection, early response to COVID-19? Of course, you you gave me this question earlier, so I've been thinking a lot about it. I think I would go through the countries 
and uh, I've actually made a list. I, I think the island republics of Taiwan, Iceland, um, and certainly New Zealand have, would get an A. The island republic of the UK and the United States, which is not an island, no matter how much we may think we are, would get a failing grade. I'd give a B um, to South Korea and to Germany. Um, and in between, so, so it's a very heterogeneous response, I think. The world as a whole is faltering. Um, we are certainly not, we shouldn't be proud of what's happening right now. I mean, it, we, we got the detection pretty early, or at least some doctors in China got the detection pretty early. Earlier than the 2002 SARS, which took six months, this took about six weeks. Um, and, and detection means not only finding it, but knowing what it is. So I would give us a pretty good score on that. The transparency, the communication, those are other issues. So what was the key, what was the key mistake that you think the countries that you gave an F to made? I think fear, uh, political uh, incompetence, interference, um, not taking it seriously soon enough. It's, it's pretty human. Um, I think throughout history, pretty much every pandemic is first viewed with denial and doubt. Um, but those countries that acted quickly, and even those who started still like South Korea, they could still make up for it, and they did really well. Um, we've had uh, two months that we've lost. We've given a virus that moves exponentially a two-month head start. That's not a good idea, Chris. No, indeed. I mean, there's so much puzzling information still out there about this virus. Um, what do you think the scientific consensus is going to likely end up being on, on like the two key numbers of its infectiousness and its fatality rate? So I think the, the, the kind of equation to keep in mind is that the virus moves uh, dependent on three major issues. One is the R-naught, the, the first number of secondary cases that there are when the virus emerges. In this case, uh, people talk about it being 2.2, 2.4, but a really important paper uh, three weeks ago in the uh, in, uh, Emerging Infectious Disease Journal came out suggesting that looking back on the Wuhan data, it's really 5.7. So for argument's sake, let's say that the virus is moving at exponential speed and the exponent is somewhere between 2.2 and 5.7. The other two factors that matter are the incubation period or the generation time. The longer that is, the slower the pandemic appears to us. When it's really short, like six days, it moves like lightning. And then the last and the most important and is often overlooked is the density of susceptibles. This is a novel virus, so we wonder how many customers could it potentially have. And as it's novel, that's 8 billion of us. Um, the world is, is facing a virus that looks at all of us like equally susceptible. doesn't matter our color, our race, or how wealthy we are. I mean, none of the numbers that you've mentioned so far are in themselves different from many other infections in recent years. What is the combination that has made this so deadly? Well, it is exactly the combination of the short incubation period and the high transmissibility. But what, you know, everybody on this call has known somebody who has the disease. Uh, sadly, many have lost a loved one. Um, this is a terrible disease when it is serious. And I get calls from doctors in emergency rooms and treating people in, um, in ICUs all over the world. 
And they all say the same thing. How do I choose who's going to live and who's going to die? I have so few tools to deal with. Uh, it, it's a terrifying disease to die alone with a ventilator in your lungs. And it, it's a disease that affects all of our organs. It's respiratory disease, perhaps misleading, makes you think of a flu. But so many of the patients have blood in their urine from kidney disease. They have gastroenteritis. They certainly have heart failure very often. We know that it affects taste and smell, the olfactory nerves. We, we know, of course, about the lung. The question I have, is there any organ that it does not affect? And in that sense, it reminds me all too much of smallpox. Hmm. So we're in a mess. Uh, what's the way forward from here? Well, the way forward is still the same. Uh, rapid detection, rapid response, finding every case, and then uh, figuring out all the contacts. We've got great new technology for contact tracing. We've got amazing scientists working at the speed of light to give us test kits and antivirals and vaccines. We need to slow down. The, the, the Buddhists say slow down time so that you can put your heart, your soul into that space. We need to slow down the speed of this virus, which is why we do social distancing. Just to be clear, flattening the curve, social distancing, it doesn't change the absolute number of cases, but it changes what could be a Mount Fuji-like peak into a pulse. And then we won't also lose people because of competition for hospital beds. The people have heart attacks, need chemotherapy, difficult births can get into the hospital and we can use the scarce resources we have, especially in the developing world, uh, to treat people. So slow down, slow down the speed of the epidemic, and then in the troughs in between waves, jump on, double down, step on it, and find every case, trace every contact, test every case, and then only quarantine the ones who need to be quarantined and do that until we have a vaccine. So it sounds like we have to get past this stage of just mitigation where we're just trying to take a general shutdown to the point where we can start identifying individual cases again and, uh, and contact trace for them and treat them separately. I mean, to do that, that seems like it's going to take a step up of coordination, ambition, organization, investment that, that we're not really seeing the signs of yet in, in some countries. Can, can we do this? How can we do this? Oh, of course we can do this. I mean, uh, Taiwan did it so beautifully. Uh, Iceland did it so beautifully. Germany, all with different strategies. South Korea, it, it re really requires competent governance, a sense of seriousness, and listening to the scientists, not the politicians, following the virus. Of course we can do this. Um, let me remind everybody, this is not the zombie apocalypse. It's not a mass extinction event. You know, 98, 99% of us are going to get out of this alive. It is not, it is, we need to deal with it the way we know we can, and we need to be the best version of ourselves, both sitting at home as well as in science and certainly in leadership. And might there be even worse pathogens out there in the, in the future? Like, can you picture or describe an even worse combination of those numbers that we should be start to get ready for? Well, smallpox had a R-naught of 3.4 to 4.5. So that's probably about what I think this, this 
COVID will be, but it killed a third of the people. Um, but we had a vaccine. So those are the different sets that you have. But what I'm mostly worried about and the reason we made contagion and the virus that we was a fictional virus, I repeat, for those of you watching, that's fiction. We created a virus that killed a lot more than this one did. So don't look at you're the, about the, the movie. The movie Contagion that has been trending on Netflix and, and you were an advisor for. Yeah. That's right. But, but we, we made that movie deliberately to show what a real pandemic looked like, but we did choose a pretty awful virus. Um, and the reason we showed it like that, going from a bat to an apple to a pig to a cook to Gwyneth Paltrow, <laughs> was because that is in nature what we call spillover as zoonotic diseases, diseases of animals spill over to human beings. And if I look backwards three decades or forward three decades, looking backward three decades, Ebola, SARS, Zika, swine flu, bird flu, West Nile, we can begin almost a catechism and, and listen to all the cacophony of these names. But there were 30 to 50 novel viruses that jumped into human beings. And I'm afraid looking forward, we are in the age of pandemics. We have to behave like that. We need to practice one health. We need to understand that we're living in the same world as animals, the environment, and us. And we get rid of this fiction that we are some kind of a, a special species. To the virus, we're not. Mm. You mentioned vaccines there. Do you see any accelerated path to a vaccine? I do. I'm really, um, I'm actually excited to see that we're doing something that uh, we only used to do in, think of in computer science, which is we're changing what should have always been or has always been rather multiple sequential processes, do safety testing, then uh, 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 you test for effectiveness, then for efficiency, and then you manufacture. We're doing all three or four of those steps in, instead of doing it in sequence, we're doing it in parallel. Bill Gates has said he's going to build seven vaccine production lines in the United States and start preparing for production, not knowing what the end vaccine is going to be. We're simultaneously doing safety tests and efficacy tests. Um, I think the NIH has um, jumped up. I'm very thrilled to see that. And how does that translate into a likely timeline, do you think? A year? 18 months? Is that possible? Well, that's, that, you know, Tony Fauci is our, our guru in this, and he said 12 to 18 months. I think that we will do faster than that in the initial vaccine. But you may have heard that this virus may not give us the immunity, the long-term immunity that something like smallpox would do. So we're trying to make vaccines where we add adjuvants that actually make the vaccine create better immunity than the disease so that we can confer immunity for many years. That's going to take a little longer. Last question, Larry. Back in 2006, as a winner of the TED Prize, um, we granted you a wish and you wished that the world would create this pandemic preparedness system that would prevent something like this happening. I feel like we, the world, let you down. Um, if you were to make another wish now, what would it be? Well, I, I don't think we're let down in terms of speed of detection. I'm, I'm actually pretty pleased. Uh, when we met in 2006, the average one of these viruses leaping from an animal to a human, it took us six months to find that, like, like the first Ebola, for example. We're now finding the first cases in two weeks. Um, I'm not unhappy about that. I'd like to push it down to a single incubation period. 
it's a bigger issue for me. What I found is that in the smallpox eradication program, people of all colors, all religions, all races, so many countries came together. And, and it took working as a global community to conquer a global pandemic. Now I feel that we have become victims of centrifugal forces. We're in our uh, nationalistic kind of barricades. We will not be able to conquer a pandemic unless we believe we're all in it together. This is not some age of Aquarius or Kumbaya statement. This is what a pandemic forces us to realize. We are all in it together. We need a global solution to a global problem. Anything less than that is unthinkable. Larry, brilliant. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Chris. TED Talks Daily is hosted by me, Elise Hugh, and produced by TED. Theme music is from Allison Layton Brown, and our mixer is Christopher Fazy Bogan. We record the talks at TED events we host or from TEDx events, which are organized independently by volunteers all over the world. And we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or email us at podcasts at TED.com.